season, that'd be great. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus invites people to be his disciples, he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. When you follow me, Jesus is saying, God's presence, with God's presence, I will make you into something you are not. I will form you, mold you, shape you into someone who reflects the Father's generous and sacrificial love. And the passage we're going to read this morning is all about how Jesus intends for his people to relate to their money and their possessions. People who come into contact with Jesus, who begin to experience the Holy Spirit move in their life, are not stingy, but generous with what they have. So let's hear his vision for how he wants us to relate to our stuff. This is Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Father in heaven, we invite you to speak to us today. We want to have your eyes to see how we should relate to the things that we have in life. And we want to have your heart, your heart to give to others, to serve others, to bless others. And so we ask that you would give us more of your son, Jesus. That his power, your power, would be made perfect in our weakness. We pray all of this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I, I've drawn from a few different sources, including guys by the names of um, Tim Keller, Andy Stanley, and Scott McKnight. Jesus uses, in this passage we just looked at, three powerful images contrasting uh, two different ways in each situation. The first one he uses is your treasure, what you're going to pursue. Then he talks about your eye as a lamp, this is these marks uh, of what it means to be generous or, or greedy, and then your masters, money or God. Choose which one you will serve. With each example, we are giving a path, two paths. One to reject, one to avoid, one is that is opposed to God, and one to embrace, one to pursue, one that aligns with the kingdom of God. And so here's the first one, your treasures. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Part of this treasuring is about pursuing, it's about desiring, it's about longing. Notice that Jesus says you shouldn't ever treasure. He just says don't store up the things you treasure on earth. One scholar puts it like this, and he says that it's actually better to say stop. Stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Stop it. The contrast in the first image we 
that we see here is between earth and heaven. Things that you store on earth are temporal. Things that you store in heaven are eternal. And because of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is invading earth. Things are changing. Those temporal things that aren't uh, from God won't last when his kingdom comes in its fullness. So part of what Jesus wants us to have is this eternal perspective. Don't store up treasures on earth because they won't satisfy your heart. We were made for things that are more than just temporal. We all have longings within our hearts for joy, for peace, for laughter. And we have desires for comfort, for connection, for respect and affection. And sometimes we pursue satisfaction in ways that are only temporarily effective. And Jesus knows our tendency to store up stuff, to gather, to consume more and more. Anyone who lives in one home long enough knows how quickly we can accumulate stuff, and there's just no place to put it all. So then you start thinking you need a bigger house, or more storage. You got to get more creative, you think. More clothes, more furniture, appliances, more mail coming in. If you don't have mail and you want it to be email, then your inbox starts to get full. At least you don't have to see it, you tell yourself. More packages, more decorations, more toys. Some of us have actually moved into a home, a larger home, that was spacious, but now feels really tight because of all the stuff that we've accumulated over years. And some of this is really natural, just happens. But a good chunk of it, we've actually pursued believing that we would be satisfied. And in the West, we struggle with overconsumption. That's why Canada and the U.S., we actually pay to ship our garbage to other countries because we can't even handle how much garbage we create. So we need to pay other people to deal with it. We can't even handle our own recycling. In B.C. and Vancouver, there's so many things that we believe are getting recycled that recycling depots can't actually handle and deal with. So they end up becoming garbage as well. All of this comes at a significant price environmentally. And our economy doesn't measure the environmental costs. It just measures money that gets moved. Jesus knows that our money, our possessions, they don't satisfy any of the longings of our hearts in any eternal sense. And if we're honest, we also understand that too. We get that. We know that it won't satisfy, that it wasn't meant to, but still, it, that doesn't stop us from falling for that idea. We know in our heads that it won't satisfy, but in practice, we don't actually change our behavior. It's like we're caught in this terrible cycle of overconsumption. And this is why buying a new cell phone that you want will satisfy temporarily, but after a while, you start thinking, man, like this one, it's so slow now. The pictures aren't even that nice anymore. They used to be so nice when I first got it, but now I need a new one. And this is why you can buy a new TV and shortly thereafter start wondering if you should have gotten that slightly better one. You know, that how much better would your you know, live sports event have been if you just had that better TV? And I think Jesus is getting at one of these scripts that run through our minds. What if I just had a little more? What if I just had a little more? If I just had a little more in my life, my life would be a whole lot better. If I just had those boots, I wouldn't have to wear these older ones that aren't even in style anymore. I'd fit in. Maybe it's a winter coat. I have a winter coat, but maybe if I just had this fall jacket, then I'd have something nice that fits this season. If I just had a little bit more room, my life would be so much better. 
But how much is enough? That's the question that we actually don't ask. How much is enough? Is it 15% more, 20% more? Because we don't actually answer that question and we lack clarity there, it's so much easier for us just to want more eventually. So we're satisfied, but only temporarily. And the problem isn't that we want nice things. The problem isn't that you need more space because your kids are growing or anything like that. The problem is that we believe the ridiculous lie that we will find true emotional, social, spiritual satisfaction when we finally get that thing. We struggle to say, I have enough. And Jesus says, my kingdom people don't store up their stuff here on earth. They store it up in heaven. They don't try to accumulate more things in order to find joy. They've stopped setting their hearts on what they can accumulate, consume, and on the stuff that they can collect. See, the temporal and insecure nature of our stuff is what Jesus is, is getting at when he says, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In the first century, banks didn't exist. Not in the way they do now. People would store their money and possessions in their home. Some would even bury it in the ground so that vermin could not get to it. And thieves would have to dig from outside of the home in order to try to steal things from people. Storing them on earth didn't guarantee that they would be secure or safe. And Jesus is highlighting how uncertain and temporal our wealth really is. Don't store up your treasures on earth, because they are uncertain and temporal. And the times are different, sure, but that truth is still the same for us. Our wealth is temporal. You can lose it faster and more easily than we think. And we're living in a time right now of great economic uncertainty, where people's investments have tanked, where the dollar converts terribly, where inflation is high and interest rates are high. You feel it when you go to the grocery store, when you read the news, when you look at your bank account. If you don't lose it when you're alive, you'll still lose it when you die. Eventually, you lose it. None of us get to take any of our money, our possessions with us when we die. And when you look at your home, the place where you live, one day someone else will live there. Someone else will live it. Someone else will get to drive your car. Someone else will get to own those things that you have. Or they'll just get rid of it. They won't want it. But the, at the end of the day, you will lose it, whether you're alive or you die. And what's so interesting here is Jesus is challenging our understanding of ownership. He's shifting it from this idea that we permanently own things to more of this idea that we're stewards of what we have. If you, if you can lose it this quickly and easily, you're more of a steward. You're managing something temporarily. Someone else will possess it after you. We need to see that. And here's why this matters. Storing up our possessions and money is how many of us build security into our lives. We're not just looking for satisfaction in getting more stuff. We're actually looking for security as well. And ironically, this lack of security and certainty that we feel pushes us to actually grasp for more. And so... We deal with this question, what if I just had a little more? But there's this other question, a deeper, nagging question we feel. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? Which is why we try to save for the rainy day. 
But even if you save a good amount for your rainy day, you never know how bad that rainy day will be. So you're still wondering, oh, I got a little bit put aside. But what if the day is actually worse than that? What if I don't have enough? So we worry. We worry that we'll have enough money for that rainy day, for retirement, for, to buy a home, to pay for a condo, to pay for rent, for a vacation, for our car payments, for a new cell phone, for that piece of furniture, or whatever else. We worry. We worry about the stuff we have, and we worry about the stuff we don't have. We worry about not having enough in the future. We worry. Jesus wants to set us free from this. This is why the Apostle Paul will write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Jesus wants to set us free from putting our trust, our sense of security in what is so uncertain and to connect us to the one who richly provides us with everything we need so that we can live life to the full. And the vision of living life to the full is not what our world or what, uh, you know, pitches to us. We are dissatisfied because we've sought, our, sought out lasting joy, peace, and contentment in things that cannot make us fully joyful, fully peaceful and content people. We're worried because our sense of security has been set on something that is temporal and insecure and not on who our Father is, a Father who loves to provide and richly provides for the things we need. And so Jesus is calling us away from that kind of life of storing up our, these possessions, our money here on earth. He's like, this isn't the way of Jesus. Reject this way. Avoid it. And instead, be generous with your money, with your possessions. Be generous with what you have been given. Hence, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying, you're in my Father's kingdom now. There's a whole new way of living, a whole new way of interacting with the stuff that you have. God's kingdom is not one of scarcity, but of abundance. Don't store up for yourselves these things and fail to be rich towards God and fail to be rich towards others. Luke's gospel provides us with another account of Jesus' teaching on this topic. And I think it gives us more clarity. This is what Luke says in Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. This sounds strikingly similar to what we read in the Gospel of Matthew. But of course, there's variations. And that's okay. That makes sense. Good teachers repeat what they say. And sometimes with variations, depending on their audience. But in both cases, Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. In other words, where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Whatever you treasure, that's what your heart's pursuing. That's what you're longing for. That's what you want. And if you want to know where your heart is, look at your checkbook, your bank statement, your transactions, your visa bill. Look at your schedule. Not the ones that we have like on our phones, but the one that we actually live by. Look at how you actually spend your time. See, your heart is where your money will go. It's where your time will be spent. It reveals what you prioritize most in life. 
Show me how you spend your time and your money, and I'll show you what you love in practice. And Jesus is saying, pursue what will last. Pursue all that is good, true, and beautiful. Pursue that which is eternal and secure. And so, of course, then you start wondering, so what is eternal? What lasts? One of the things that lasts is the love of God. The love of God. Psalm 136 will declare that his love endures forever 26 times. It's a refrain. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And then it continues to describe who God is and his character, what he has done for his people. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. It's like this common refrain you need to hear. His love endures forever. And Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 13, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Pursue the one whose love endures forever. Pursue loving others with the love that endures forever. Love them with the love that God has for you. Now, why do we start here, not just with pursue being generous? Because when you encounter the love of God in Jesus, when the love of God envelops you, generosity is the natural byproduct. Real love is generous. You can give money away and not have love. You can give stuff away and not actually do it from a place of love. You can be motivated by pride. You can be motivated by being seen by others as being generous, but not actually being motivated by love. This is why Paul will write, In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, I gain nothing. But all that Jesus has been trying to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of people who encounter him and begin to live differently. They begin to live in light of who he is and what he is doing in our world. And the kind of people Jesus is forming is a people who are generous with all that they have. They're generous because they've encountered love incarnate in Jesus. And two things that begin to develop in people who come into contact with him and stay in contact with him are that, one, they can't help but be thankful. They can't help but be thankful. You can't help but see all of the mercy, grace, and love that is provided by you, for you by God. You, in the little things, like yesterday's beautiful sunset, like on Monday on Halloween when it didn't rain, And all these little kids had their prayer answered. God, please hold off the rain. You can't help but be thankful in those little things. The gift of a stable job, of a warm home. Generous people are people who look around at their life and give thanks for what they have. And then they want to share that joy with others. They want to bless other people, recognizing that they've been blessed. They're, be, they're people who are moved by God's love for them and others. So Jesus highlights, what are you treasuring? What are you pursuing? What is it that you long for? And then he uses this other image, this image of your eye as a lamp. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Sounds really weird to us because we're not used to this type of imagery. But 
Jesus is using an ancient image here to speak about how people respond to those in need. In the ancient world, there was this understanding that the eye was like a window that allows light to pass through your body. Light exits through your eye, as long as your eye is healthy. But if it's unhealthy, then you're full of darkness, because that window is essentially covered or closed. It's not healthy. So Jesus takes this idea and connects it to God, the source of light. And Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, will identify himself as the light of the world. In Greek, the word uh, healthy that we see here refers to health, but it was also used to refer to generosity. While unhealthy refers to, yes, being sick, but also stinginess or greed. A healthy eye then was generous, but an unhealthy eye was stingy. And Jesus is saying, when you're greedy, no light can enter you, and no light comes out of you. But if you know the Sermon on the Mount, he's told his people, you are the, you are the, the light of the earth, you are the salt of the earth. He's, call, he's calling his people to be different, and that light comes from him. And now he's bringing this image here and talking about how, look, if your eyes aren't healthy, that light can't come through you. It's like you're walking around with this limited vision. Now, those of you who know me know that I uh, normally wear glasses. And um, glasses are, like, I'm so thankful I live in this time period in human history. Because if it was for a thousand years ago and I was alive, I would be struggling in life. I, 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 I have to wear glasses or contacts when I drive. By law, I'm pretty sure I'm like right on that cusp of being like legally blind. I can see, but I can't see like probably like halfway through the back there. I wouldn't be able to see like, you know, clearly how many fingers someone is wearing. I, I can't read a lot of details. It's hard for me to see clearly. I'm limited in what I'm able to see without glasses. And that's what greed does to you. It limits you. It limits what you can see in two ways. Greed blinds you to the extent of your own greed. The problem with greed is that you can't see it in a mirror. It's not like a pimple or a piece of food on the, stuck to the side of your mouth that you see. It's not like a stray gray hair standing out amongst the black. It's not like that. It doesn't stand out. You can't see it. You don't, and so you don't ask and you don't consider the possibility that you may be greedy. Greed blinds you to the extent of your own greed. And when you think of greed, you usually think of the most extreme examples. You think of Scrooge, Smog, and The Hobbit. You think of someone really wealthy, someone with extravagant wealth. Maybe you think of Jeff, Jeff Bezos or you think of Elon Musk. You think of people not named you. You never consider yourself to be greedy. That's never on the table. Greed blinds us to seeing how greedy we actually are. It impairs our vision, so we're not even able to see how tightly we hold on to our stuff. We don't recognize it. It blinds us to how worried and dissatisfied we are with our stuff. And so maybe we want to give, but we want it to cost us as little as possible. Secondly, and connected to that, greed distorts all of the opportunity around you to give. 
so that all you can see is what you will lose if you give. Greed makes people assume that it all belongs to them. It literally closes you off to opportunities around you, and you can't see or won't see them, even though they are there. Greed distorts what you see so that these opportunities to give to others are framed through the lens of what you lose out on. They are framed through a lens of lack and loss. Instead of making you wise with your money, greed makes you skeptical of people's motives, organizations, missions, and anyone who will talk about money because they're after your money. Instead of making you warm and kind, greed pushes you to hold back. But Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, sacrificial generosity is a sign that God is at work in your life. If greedy people's eyes are closed to these opportunities to give, generous people look for opportunities to give and they seize them. And that's why we're highlighting these, these organizations in our city that are doing important work. We want to be a people who recognize how generous God has been with us and then seize that opportunity to bless others. We want to leverage what God has given us to love the poor, to love refugees, to love those living with mental health issues, needing housing in our city. And we want to do it in Jesus' name. We want to fund the cause of equipping churches to pray in order to see a movement of mission and justice birthed in our nation. Generous people see opportunities clearly. Generous people know generosity will cost you something, and they still do it anyways. When opportunity arises, it's often inconvenient. It doesn't come at a great time. It costs you something. It means you can't take a vacation at this time because you helped your coworker whose family member died, and you were helping cover their funeral costs. It means helping a friend with rent because they're facing a tough time. And you're going to help them. And you're going to step in and stand the gap with them. It's costly. Generous people say, I get to give. I don't have to give. I gladly choose to give that up so that I can serve others. When I was a commercial uh, painter, I worked with a 70-year-old guy who worked part-time. And his whole goal was uh, to work in order to bless others. He didn't have to work. And I remember asking him, he was a follower of Jesus, and I asked him, why are you still working, trying to make sense of it? He didn't have to. I knew his son, and his son told me, like, yeah, my dad doesn't have to be working. Uh, so I said, like, why? Why do you do this? And he said, one of the reasons I still work part-time in my 70s is so that I can have some money to help people. And then one day, I saw him go up to another coworker and said, hey, I have something for you. I want to give you $100 so that you can go take your wife out for Mother's Day. And I, I saw him do that, and then at lunch, I'm like, I, I, I tried to like pick his brain about like, why, what moved you to do that? Why would you want to do that? And he said, I don't own this stuff. I just have it on loan. I don't own this stuff. I just have it on loan. He could be retired, doing other things, but instead he was working so that he could give it away and bless, bless others. We don't own this stuff permanently. 
One day someone else will get it. So what will you do with the stuff that you are given on loan? Generous people also shine God's light on the things that break their hearts. A few years ago, there was this boy, a seven-year-old boy who was in the news. He was interviewed by CTV News because instead of asking for gifts for his birthday, he asked for his friends to give him money so that he could give that money to the UGM on the downtown east side. He got $85, and he donated that $85 check to them. And when CTV News interviewed him, he says, I want to give the love of Jesus to other people who don't know it and give money to people who don't have clothes. See, you don't have to be an adult to have your heart broken by the pain and suffering of our world. You don't have to be an adult to do something in the name of Jesus. $85 is not a lot to most of us in this room. But it's not about the amount. It was costly for this boy to do that. He didn't have to, but he got to give. He chose to give. Generosity is this antidote to greed. It is a declaration that your stuff, my stuff, our money doesn't have power over us. Generous people see the stuff that they have as a tool to bless and serve others, to encourage others, to support them. They have this lens that allows them to see their possessions and their money as they really are and for the purposes that they really are. And that is why Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and you can't serve money. You can't serve Jesus and your stuff. You can't walk down two paths at the same time. Pick one because you can't do both. Which one do you want to live by? Jesus came to set us free from the sin of greed, from all sin. He came to rescue us and restore us and our world. And Jesus himself lived a life of complete generosity. His eye was healthy and he was full of light. Which is why Jesus will say in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to fill us with the light, so that we could see people's needs, see our stuff in the right perspective, and so that we would release our stuff from our clenched hands and then offer it up for his purposes. Jesus knew generosity better than anyone else. Think about what he does. He had the ultimate status, the ultimate treasure, the ultimate security. He is God himself, Lord, overall. Philippians 2 tells us that despite this, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up all his treasure. Why? Why would Jesus do that? He died for something. And you only die for something that is precious to you. And the Bible says and teaches that whatever you make most precious in your life, whatever you make the greatest treasure in your life, will ultimately insist that you die to purchase it. And yet the paradox of the Christian faith is that we are set free from our sin, from the power of greed, when we make Jesus our greatest treasure. Jesus is the only treasure who will die for you, who lays down his life for you. And when you make him the most important thing, 
the greatest treasure, the most precious, the center of your life, when you open your life to his leading, you find one who doesn't fill you with worry and dissatisfaction, but who leads you into the self-giving heart of God the Father. When you choose Jesus as master, questions of how much should I give shift from what's the least I am required to give, Lord, to what did he give? He becomes the measure for our generosity. His giving was sacrificial, so my giving must be sacrificial too. And if it doesn't cost me anything, if it makes no difference in my life, then there's no discipleship there. Serving money is choosing to live life on a treadmill that will never turn off. It's exhausting. And it is not what Jesus intends for his people. But when you serve Jesus, you live off of a love and provision that never runs out. And the invitation, the call for every person who says they're a follower of Jesus is to take his way, to follow him down this path that he's shown for us, that he's laid out and calls us to. And so, Father in heaven, we come before you and we see your son Jesus and the life he calls us to. And we confess that there are things that we have been worried about, anxious about. There's been moments, Lord, where we've been saying, what if I just had a little more? And there have been other times where we've been more worried and asking, will I have enough? In you, Lord, we have enough. You richly provide for our every need. We want to walk in obedience, Lord. We want to trust you. We want to live in the kingdom life that you have for us. So fill us with your spirit that we would see things as you do. Empower us so that we might do the things you call us to do. That the light that would enter in, in our lives, shine a light, Lord Jesus, on all those different areas of our life where we have actually been holding on to things so tightly. And also shine your light through us, Lord, so that we might make you known in our lives, with our family, with our friends and neighbors in this city. And we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. We're going to take part in communion.